Assignments due. We have a homework assignment due today. I know a number of you turned it in. You can drop that off in between the two if you're turning it in here, as well as the solar observations. So I have two piles up here for them for today. I will look at the solar observations this weekend, and I'll have them back to you Monday. So if you're giving me, some people have given me their actual sheet, so they'll want them back, so you can have that. I will definitely have those back on. Question? Okay. On, mon on Monday for you. So those two are, are due. Now again, they're due today means by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning in the Dropbox on D2L if you want to submit them. If you want to submit them there. So if you don't have them now, you can submit them digitally there. And someone in this class and the previous class had mentioned you know, there are a couple things you're asked to sketch in them. There are ways if you have a paint program, you can sketch them in that if you want to do that. You can also, if it's a lot easier, to sketch it on a piece of paper and take a picture of it. You know, photograph it and attach the picture file with your submission is fine as well. So any way you want to get it to me is, is fine. You can write them and scan them. You can write them and photograph them however you want to be able to attach it. Of course, if you've already turned it in already, you don't need to worry about that. But for future reference, if you're thinking, oh, I'll do the homework later and you don't realize there was something I asked you to draw, there are a number of ways that you can still attach that to the Dropbox. And I'm not, you know, photographs, I've seen a number of them be submitted and as long as I can see the image, they work out just fine. Quiz 2 is up and will be available through Monday. Well, Tuesday morning, but will be available through the day Monday. That covers chapters 2 and 3 for us here. 2 is done. 3, we should be through a lot of 3 today, if not all of it. So we'll see how far we've gotten through that. But that will be available through Monday, so I'll certainly have been through everything by then if you want to wait and not take it until I've actually covered all the material. And then next week we have the first article review due on Friday and the iTunes quiz again will be available starting Friday through Monday covers the pictures from the 20th of August through the 14th of September. And I let my other class know this. I wanted to let you know the one I asked you to subscribe to and I'm going to pull up iTunes on here. If you go into the classes, the one I asked you to subscribe to only keeps the last 30 podcasts. So if anybody is, if you're not, if you're not listening, I know some people listen to they go along. Some people may have subscribed early on and not bothered to. But if you're going to go back and look at them for the quiz, that is, the one I asked you to subscribe to is the current semester one. And that keeps 30 in it. So right now it has through today's and it goes back to August 16th, which covers the semester. But a week from now, seven of those will be gone. You'll start taking off the bottom of those will disappear as the new ones go in. If you are, if you've been, if you've been downloading them as you go, or if you are using them, if you're not using them at all, you know you're not required to. But if you're not using them at all, you know, it doesn't matter. If you're, if you downloaded them once at the beginning of the semester and never did anything else with it, it may not download these. Some of these will be gone by then, so you may not be able to go back next weekend and get all of them. So I wanted to let you know if you're going to use this one. You can. You just do want to keep it updated for this semester. So if you ever want to go back to hear an old one, if you want to listen to a couple of them before you do the quiz, you could certainly do that. If you miss one and you desperately want to get it, if you look, if you go into this in iTunes under the iTunes Store, iTunes U Science, and look for the astronomy ones with my name on them, there is another photo of the day collection that I didn't refer you to, which is really my archives. And if you go to that one, this is where I started doing them about a year and a half ago. Meaning that there are now, it says 300, that's wrong. It only counts to 300, but there's actually seven, almost 600 now. 
So if you ever need to go back and get an old and you really have that desire to go get, they're there. You can go back and listen to one from a year and a half ago if you don't need it for this class, but if you really happen to look at one and want to hear what I said about it, you can. The convenience for this class is that if you miss one, I don't delete and this, this thing never gets deleted. So everything stays in here. So if you want to get the one from the first day of class and you never did, you never subscribed to them early on and they're gone, you can go back and get any one that I've ever done which goes back to February of 2011. Again, I don't like to give this to people at general because people go on to the first day of class and they log into it to subscribe and find out that there's already 500 and some available and you know, your system goes, no, I have to download 500 things. No, you don't need to. I just don't delete. This just keeps everything up for an archive purpose. But they're there if you need to get them. You, know, you don't have to email me. I didn't, that one got deleted. I don't have it. That's the place to get them because that's, as Apple stores all of those for us. So just to let you know that it does there and it exists and if you get one that's deleted, if you're studying for the thing and you never downloaded them early on, by next week some of these other ones will disappear. Now if you downloaded them already, they don't dis you know, it doesn't delete them. If you download them onto your iPad, onto your computer, they're there till you delete them. But if you didn't download them, it won't let you download them after 30 days from the one I gave you. That just keeps 30 days worth. So I wanted to let you know of that so you were not getting a shock when you looked at them and found out I was going to download them all and skim through a couple before I took the quiz. Questions? Nope. All right, picture of the day for today. It's a couple of galaxies. So something nice and appropriate for this course. We've got two different galaxies here. We have a elliptical galaxy, M60, Messier Object 60. It's a catalog name for it. That's the big blob right here. And we have a spiral galaxy, NGC 4647. Again, the specific names aren't that important, but a spiral galaxy up here. Now, these are two different classifications of galaxies, two different types of galaxies. And you can see how distinctly different they are. If we look at the one, the elliptical galaxy looks like a star almost, kind of a big extended star. It's not quite a star. It's not, it's not a star. And we can see that. Actually, one of the things we looked at a little bit maybe last time when we talked about diffraction. I'm going to turn that off for a second so you can see this. And as it adjusts, a star, when looked at through a telescope, through a reflecting telescope, will always show little spikes to it. And you can see on this one, you can see a little tiny cross pattern there. And maybe in this one up here, you can see a little cross pattern. There's another one there. They all have that. A star will always, will always show that kind of pattern. So we'll always see that in a star. A galaxy actually has some size to it and does not show that same pattern. Now that is, give me some light back, that's really just that mechanism in the telescope. And again, we looked at tel we're looking a little bit at telescopes right now. But when you're looking down the tube of a telescope, you have the telescope tube down there, you're looking straight down it. If it's a reflecting telescope, there's a big mirror down there at the bottom that reflects the light back up to a secondary mirror, which is right there. Now if that were the way you were going to do it, that's all well and good, and then you don't have to worry about those patterns. Problem is, getting that secondary mirror to stay there with nothing to hold it. It doesn't like to just float in space or in the atmosphere right above the telescope. You've got to hold it in place. So if you think a lot of it is held in place by something like this, that's the pattern you're seeing. You're seeing the diffraction of the light going around 
these little bits and it actually shows up in the image of anything that looks like a star. So anything that's a very tight point like a star will show this pattern based on the actual telescope mounting because you have to put something there. You know, if you could get an anti-gravity secondary mirror that just hovered there in space, that would be great and you'd get rid of that pattern. But that's, what we're, that's why we're seeing it here. But the galaxies don't show that because they're bigger objects. They're not just a point of light to even the most powerful telescopes. They're actually bigger so you don't see that diffraction pattern. The other thing that you notice with these two is that they're different colors. The one down there, the elliptical galaxy, sort of a whitish yellow color. The spiral galaxy is a blue, bluish color. That tells us something about the galaxies and the stars that are in them. This one's just a big smooth blob, sort of a yellowish, yellowish white color primarily. The other one's got all these lumps and knots and everything to it. And what we're seeing is that one is currently forming new stars, the spiral galaxy up in the upper right. We're seeing the dust lanes, so where dusty areas are, where it's more dense, where stars could be forming deep down in there. We also see all the light from billions of blue stars. Now, blue stars are very hot, give off a lot of blue light. Remember, that's what the spectrum tells us and very, very young. They don't live a very long time. They'll only live for 2 million years, 5 million years, 10 million years. Sounds like forever, right? When 2 million years from now, what will Earth be like? Well, who, who knows? Couldn't even, begin to, couldn't even begin to give a guess. Be lucky enough to guess what it would be like 20 years ago. You know, would you have guessed what we'd be now 20 years ago? Probably not. But for, in terms of a star, you know, that's just a very short time period of, of, of many a star like the sun's life. But those blue stars don't live very long. So when this galaxy was forming stars, it formed lots of those blue stars too. Formed all sorts of stars. They're just all gone. That, star, that galaxy may not have formed stars in 10 billion years. So that all of these stars that only live for 2 million years, 2 million years, 10 billion years, they're gone. They don't exist. 10 million years, 10 billion years, pfft, they're all gone. A billion years, 10 billion years, they're still all gone. It's only the very oldest stars that still exist. And the stars that live the shortest lives are the hottest ones. And they're all gone. So we don't see that blue tinge here. If you could go back and look at it 10 billion years ago when stars were still forming, it would have looked a lot, not like that galaxy, different type of galaxy, but it would have had a lot more bluish blue to it. But it doesn't have that anymore because all those stars are now since gone. Now we'll go over the stellar evolution and how the stars change over the coming weeks as we get through the rest of our, after we get through the rest of our summaries, then we'll go in and actually talk about stars in much more detail. And that's one of the first things we'll talk about is how the stars, the different types of stars and how they go through their lives. Questions? I'm 18. Okay, we're almost up there. All right, well, let's go on to back to telescopes then. And we had looked at CCDs last time. And I'd sort of shown you that as the modern method of recording an image for astronomy. So that's how we go about taking pictures now. It's all done digitally. That's relatively recent, you know, in the last. 30 some years maybe that it's gone that way before this and even even in the meantime a lot of images were taken with regular 
as you'd say, photographic film, if you're familiar with like the old plastic, right? You had the old plastic sheeting with film emulsions on it. For those who remember pre-digital photography. And you'd take the, you'd have the, you'd have that and you could take a picture. Well, astronomy wasn't quite done that way. It didn't really use film. It actually used a piece of glass. So you'd take a little plate of glass, you know, about six or so, six, eight inches on a side. You'd put the photographic emulsion on that and you'd take your image right onto that piece of glass. Gives you some problems, right? I mean, just first of all, storage. It has to be stored. You know, you can't just store film if it's real hot or real cold. You know, you're going to destroy it. So you'd have these, you know, vaults of plates that had to be kept in very specific climate controlled temperatures. They're also very easy to damage, you know. If you drop, if you have all your digital data on a computer and it's backed up, you're fine, right? You can drop the computer or drop it in the bathtub and your computer might be ruined. But the data still exists somewhere. If you have digital data, it still exists. If you're carrying a case of glass plates and you trip down the stairs, wouldn't be pleasant for you and wouldn't be pleasant for the plates either. So you wouldn't really want. So one of the reasons we don't use them for a lot of things anymore is just it's so much easier to use the digital ones. And as the technology has come up, you know, it took a while. It wasn't just developing. It was developing ones that actually could be transferred and you could read the data out sufficiently accurately to be able to get the, not lose any data in it. You didn't want to lose any of your observations in terms of, you know, reading it out. Because the way these are set up, and you can see if you're familiar with any kind of digital, you know, digital circuits, they have a little trails going up there to read out the numbers. You can't just read them all directly. You have to read them sort of in, they read out in chains as you count how many electrons were collected by each of the little different cells. So you read the one first, but the one that's way down here in the opposite corner has to go through all of this before. And if you lose one in a, you know, one out of a thousand, doesn't sound like too much. But if you've got, if you're talking megapixels, 10 megapixels, 12 megapixels, and you've got 12 million of them, and you lose one out of every thousand every time you go by one of those, you'll lose a lot of your information from one edge. So it took a long time before they were actually accurate enough that you could read these out where you'd only lose, you know, one in a billion, one in a hundred billion of your little bits of signal on the far uh, far edge. But that is how. Nowadays, everything is pretty much done by these, being able to make them bigger, being able to make them more efficient and more accurate to actually make measurements. All right. And, of course, image processing much works much better with digital photographs, right? You know, Photoshop, you can do lots, all sorts of things, take your images and make much better images. So you can take things that, for example, on this side, you might have had an early image, or maybe a photographic plate type image, might have looked like something on the left. You've got an object here and a couple other objects that you could study. How bright are they? You know, what do you learn about them? But when you're able to use computer enhancements to work on it and enhance the images, you can actually find out that that's not one big object, but it breaks down. There's a lot of other objects, more objects, more objects. There's still a central core there that's all together, but you've actually found that instead of just two or three objects, and maybe a few others, you know, maybe there's one right here, this little tail sticking out, maybe there's another one, maybe there's another one. As you enhance it more, you can find so much more detail in it and actually get a better, more true representation of what is really out there. So again, no way to do that with a plate. Once you have a plate, you're just studying it. 
Yeah, you could digitize it and try to get something that way, but once that, that technology is there, you can still go, you can take the images even better now, and of course be able to process and share them even, even easier. Hubble Space Telescope. It was launched in 19, 1990. It's been going for 22 years now. It originally had like a 15 year life. So it's well beyond its original lifespan that was set for it. It's doing, 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 still doing well. It had its last servicing mission, what was it, about a year ago now? Since the last shuttle went up in July, there's no more shuttle flights to service it. So now if something goes wrong, it's sort of out of luck. There's no way to get back up there to, to service it and fix anything. So it's still working. As long as it still goes, their astronomers will keep using it. They've had, we've had very good luck with NASA and a lot of the projects have gone well beyond their expected lifetimes. The original Mars rover that were sent, the two of them, one, one's done, one got stuck and no longer can rove Mars, but the first one that was sent is still there too, so it is still observing. In addition to the Opportunity rover which just landed, there's an earlier rover that's still, is still exploring Mars. It was only supposed to have a few year lifespan. It's still going. As long as it's still going, it's a lot cheaper to keep the one going it is than to send a new one. Equipment might be outdated. Yeah, you know, if it's 10-year-old equipment, but it's 10-year-old equipment that's right there instead of modern equipment that you've got to pay however many hundreds of millions of dollars to get there. So Hubble has made some great advances. The big key with Hubble is that it's up above the Earth's atmosphere. So it's actually not, you know, you don't have to look through the Earth's atmosphere. And if, you know, you look out at night, look at those stars. They're beautiful, but they twinkle, right? If you go to the moon, stars don't twinkle. They only twinkle on the Earth. And they only twinkle on the Earth because of our atmosphere. So any, any planet with an atmosphere, yes, you'd get the same thing. But that twinkling is really the starlight coming through the atmosphere. And what's the atmosphere doing? It's not just sitting there nice and calm. You've got tubs of the atmosphere going this way and this way and this way. And as that light comes down through the atmosphere, instead of coming straight down like that to us, you know, it didn't, kind of a zigzaggy path. So sometimes it looks like the star is in one position, sometimes it looks like it's in another. To your eye, it looks like the star is jumping around just a little tiny bit. It's not jumping from this side of the sky to this side of the sky, but it's jumping around right in that same area and changes how it looks to us. So it twinkles. But that does the same thing when a star, when we take a picture with the telescope, it smears out the image of the star. So instead of getting a point, which is what you should see for a star, you get something that looks like a little little disk with your diffraction pattern through it. So it smears out anything we try to see. So great to get above the atmosphere and be able to make much more high resolution observations. So 22 years worth of data. The nice thing was that they were able to get up there and change it so the instruments are not 22 year old instruments. You know, what was a digital camera like 22 years ago versus a digital camera today? You know, you didn't have, you know, 20 megapixel, what are they now, 20 megapixels or more? I don't even know what the, I think I'm still stuck on 12 or something, you know, it's like, you know, 12, 12 16, I mean, they get bigger and bigger. Well, you know, the technology has constantly gotten better. So they could put new equipment on it. The telescope itself doesn't change, you know, got a mirror to reflect the light. You got secondary mirrors, you send it to the instruments. The instruments could be up there and change. So we actually have more modern instruments that have been put up on it and different types of detectors. So here's an example of what you can see. And as you kind of zoom in with the Hubble Space Telescope, 
Here's one that was taken on Earth on the left-hand side. And nice image, pretty nice image, beautiful picture of a galaxy there. Looks a lot like the one that we saw for the picture of the day for today. But if we look at Hubble, what we get here, there's the galaxy. We zoom in on just that core, you can actually see much more detail deep down in here. Now that all gets smeared out by our atmosphere if we look at it from Earth. That's all smeared together. We can't see the details in that core. No matter how much we zoom in, you zoom in on a blur, you get a bigger blur. Doesn't help you a lot. When you have finer resolution, much more detail that you can see, instead of looking at that blur that we see on, on Earth, we can actually get images like this and we can study individual stars there in there getting closer and closer to the center of that galaxy. So the whole idea again is getting above the Earth's atmosphere to be able to look at all, this, all these objects with much more detail. Mm. Alright, telescopes. Why do we make big telescopes? Why do telescopes keep getting bigger and bigger? Well, there's a couple things that we'll look at here. And they're really the three powers of a telescope. The first one is what we call the light gathering power. <coughs> light gathering power really just tells you how much light you can gather from an object. And it depends on how large, depends on how large the telescope is. So it really depends on the diameter of a telescope. Makes sense, right? Bigger the telescope. If I give you a big telescope, you're going to be able to see things, see fainter things. I'm going to be collecting more light if I use a telescope this big versus a telescope this big. Well, I'm going to be able to collect a lot more light. Your eyes do the same thing, right? If you're in bright light, your pupils get really small, let a little bit of light in. If it gets darker and your pupil stayed real tiny, you're not going to see a lot. But your pupil will expand to try to let more and more light in to let you see more. So essentially it's making a small telescope into a big telescope. Making a bigger one to be able to see at night. And what do the animals do? The animals have you know, different style pupils than ours, like the cats that go this way and actually expand out to get tremendously bigger. So they can go from being narrow slits to being very, very big and help them to be able to see even better at night. It's the same kind of thing. It depends on the diameter of the eye, how big the pupil of the eye is, how big this telescope is. And it depends on, if we look at it, um, let's see, it depends on the square of the diameter. So it's actually the diameter to the second power. Which means that if I have a telescope with a diameter of two inches and one with four inches and one with six inches that the light gathering power is going to be, well we only need to look at the comparison so that's going to be whatever it is. But compared to the two inch, the four inch is not going to have twice the light gathering power. It's going to have two times squared or four times the light gathering power. Compared to a two inch telescope the six inch telescope doesn't have three times the light gathering power, but instead three squared or nine times the light gathering power. 
So if you're looking at buying a telescope, you really want to get the biggest telescope you can afford. Look at it that way. I mean, you look at it that way. You want to get the biggest one you can afford. That's going to give you the best light gathering power, the power, the best ability to see things. That doesn't mean go break the bank to get to buy a 10 meter telescope for your backyard, but you want if you're looking at one and this one that's a four inch and one that's a six and one that's an eight that are in a similar price range, if you can afford the eight, you'd want to go that way, just because you'll be able to get much more detail. One other thing when if you're buying a telescope is to look at is to look at the size in the opposite direction, is look at how easy it is to set up. It's one thing people usually don't think about, but you go out and buy this nice telescope and but it takes you half an hour to get it set up. How often are you going to set it up? You want to make something that you're going to use. You want something you can just pull out and use, right? Oh, look, there's something. The moon's out. I want to pull it out. Well, it's going to take me a half an hour. Forget it, right? I mean, that's how people are. You're going to you're going to do that. Oh, it's going to take me a half an hour, 45 minutes to set it up, and the same to take it down to look at the moon for five minutes. Whereas if you can just take it out there, set it up, and boom, you're done. You're more likely to use it. So there's a couple little things you want to look at. Yeah, you want to get a big one. But if you're spending a lot of money, you also want to get one that's very easy to set up. You don't want to just get you know, a 15-inch telescope because you can afford it that you're going to use once a year. You might be better off with a 6-inch telescope that you can put up in five minutes to be able to look at something. So the images here are showing you sort of what I gave you here. It improves what you can see. This is one telescope. This is a telescope that's twice the size. See the difference in the detail as to what you're able to see. Here you've got the very central core of this galaxy. Here you have the same, but you're starting to see a lot more of the structure going out here. All this was not visible in that smaller telescope. It was still there. It was just too faint. You didn't have a big enough telescope to pull that fainter light, to collect enough faint light to make it visible. So the bigger the telescope, the more detail you're going to see. If you look at a Amateur telescope, you know, something that's six or eight, six, eight, ten, twelve inches, you'll be able to see some relatively nice images of galaxies, but they'll look fuzzier, you know, fuzzier images. If you look at them with the telescope that is meters across and you take an extended picture of it, you can get much more detail. That's when you see those images that we were looking at before. Is it previous? You know, that's when you get these kind of things. Yeah. And honestly, you'll never, no matter how big a telescope you ever look through, You'll never see an image like that. Those are taken. Those take you know hours of exposure. So that's taking the camera, putting it on the putting it on the galaxy, and taking a picture for you know 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Your eye will still see a fuzzy patch with it. It takes a long time to collect enough light to really bring out the details. So a lot of those really beautiful images you see are never anything you're going to see with looking at an actual telescope. So light gathering power is the first of the powers of the telescope. So it's one of the things you want to look at if you're looking at it, if you're looking for a telescope. That's really the most important one to look at. And again, corresponding with how much am I going to use it. Doesn't mean, again, just because you can afford something so much bigger that if you're never going to use it because you're not going to bother to set it up because it takes so much work and time, that's not going to do you much good either. Now, what astronomers do with this is they actually, it's hard to build really big telescopes. When you're talking about going from a 4-inch telescope to a 6-inch telescope to an 8-inch telescope, that's not difficult. We can, you know, other than that you've got to spend a few hundred dollars more or a few to get a bigger telescope, it's not a difficult thing to do. But astronomers are building telescopes that are 10 meters across, 12 meters across. 
gets hard to make a big mirror that's you know, 12 meters across is pretty big when you think about that. You know, you're talking about mirrors that are bigger than this entire room. Yeah? Um, did you see uh, the special was on Wednesday night, uh, the Discovery Channel? Uh, mm, no. They funded and uh, got online. No, I didn't. How? Yeah, it's a 14 meter. 14 meter now? I know they're getting big, so. Uh, yeah, they, it was on Wednesday. They okay. They the whole process of building it and they messed up the, the glass. They, they cracked it somehow, so it took six years to rebuild it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the problems with building a big telescope. You're trying to build, I and mean, it's nice to have a mirror that's that big, but when you're talking 14 meters, sounds about right. That's, that's a good size. That's a really good size. I mean, what did I say it was here? This is about, this was about 30 feet from front to the back of the room. That's about 10 meters. So you're talking a mirror that would stretch, you know, here and go beyond. That's a heck of a piece of glass. And if you crack it, oops. You know, what can you do? You make a problem with the Hubble Space Telescope, right? When it was originally sent up, the mirror was ground slightly to the wrong shape. So the first images that came back weren't near as good as they thought. They had to actually send up little correcting lenses to fix, fix that. You know, and it can be expensive. You know, how much did that first mirror cost? I cracked it, now you've got to start all over again. And those mirrors you know, aren't $50,000 mirrors. You're talking millions of dollars you know, just for the mirror portion of the telescope. But so what they do is sometimes they build telescopes at a more comfortable size. You know, they're getting, getting comfortable building 8 and 10 meters. And you build combinations of them and sort of fuse them together. So there's actually methods that you can use. This is actually, uh, this is Mauna Kea in Hawaii. So a whole set of telescopes up here. But the Keck telescopes are a pair, a pair that can almost be used together. So in tandem to look at the same object. So you have certain amount of light gathering power here and a certain light amount of light gathering power here. If you use both of them together, well, you double it. Right? You've got two real big telescopes. You can look at the same object at the same time, combine those images, and you can actually get a much bigger, not near as big as you would if you had one telescope that was mirror that was that size. That would be wonderful. But price-wise, you know, the price of a telescope mirror doesn't doesn't level off and it doesn't go up like this, you know, it doesn't get, you know, price of the telescope versus size of the mirror, it goes up more like that. So it goes straight up. So when you're starting to talk to go from, you know, 10 meter to 12 meter to 14 meter, you're not just talking, oh, the price doesn't double, the double, the price might go up 10 times or 100 times to try to get that larger mirror just because you're really you're building something that is that tremendous. Now, telescopes are put up in here in Hawaii. A whole bunch of them. You can see there's a whole bunch. There's Gemini North. There's actually a Gemini South telescope down in Chile. You see that there's some infrared telescopes, NASA and United Kingdom infrared telescopes. Infrared, if you would call it, gets absorbed by the atmosphere somewhat, especially in very wet areas. So why would you put an infrared telescope in Hawaii? Could be a pretty wet area. Well, you're actually up on the mountains in Hawaii. You're not down on the beaches. There are, you're up on the mountains. So you're very up, pretty tall mountains. You're up above a lot of the atmosphere. You're up above a lot of the water vapor. So you're really up there. So you can actually observe in the infrared from very tall mountaintops. Put them down on the beach, you wouldn't see a darn thing. I mean, that would be that, it would be that wet there. But a number of different telescopes. And Hawaii is a good one. There's a lot of telescopes in Hawaii. Um, because again, you have the mountains. Down in Chile, a lot of telescopes down in the mountains of Chile. A lot of telescopes in the Rocky Mountains, especially in the south in the deserts. So when you get to Arizona, has Kitt Peak has a lot of telescopes that are there. And again, they tend to be grouped together. Well, it's convenience for maintenance and getting people to and from the telescopes to be able to observe. 
instead of having one here and one there. It used to be 50, 50 years ago that you know each like, university would have its own telescope. So you know, Harvard would have its telescope in Boston, and University of Chicago had its in Chicago, and you know um, UCLA would have its out outside of Los Angeles. The problem was as the cities built up, the skies got too bright. So they moved, some of the telescopes were actually moved. There are telescopes that were moved from northern areas down to southern areas in order to get away from the bright skies. You know, the bright skies of Philadelphia. What do we have here? Philadelphia, Washington, you know, all real close together. Baltimore, you know, you've got a real bright sky if you're in that area. You're not going to see a lot. And a professional telescope like this will pick up a lot of that light. The other reason they were moved. What's the weather like in Hawaii in terms of cloudiness compared to, you know, Harrisburg? We get a lot more cloudy days. They get a lot fewer down there. If you take the telescope down to Arizona as some moved from the one moved from Michigan down to Arizona, even if they ended up sharing it. So you know, you got a couple universities here. We got a telescope, let's move it someplace and now we'll share it. They actually would get more observing time, more time to use that telescope down in Arizona than they had when they had the entire telescope to themselves up in Michigan. Because the weather was horrible. You couldn't observe. You couldn't observe. Okay, well, it's cloudy tonight. It's cloudy tomorrow night. Cloudy the next night. I can't observe anything. Yeah, you get the clouds down in Arizona, but you get a much higher percentage of clear days. You might get 300 nice clear days instead of 100 when you're further north. All right, here's another one. Just showing you pictures of a couple of these. This is down in Chile. This is the Very Large Telescope. Astronomers love these fancy acronyms for them, right? Very large telescope, very inventive, creatively named. They are big telescopes. There's actually a set of four of them in this case. So you've got three here, one, two, three, and then the fourth one here in the front. But very, very big telescopes. And again, stuck, stuck in the mountain, in the Andes Mountains down in Chile. So up very high, up above a lot of the atmosphere, and able to minimize that twinkling. You want to minimize that as much as you can so you get much more high, high resolution, high detailed images. But those are some of the very big telescopes that have been made and they're still, they're still working on building more. Now the next power of a telescope is the resolving power. Okay, it's moving on me. Let's try that again. There we go. Resolving power. What we want to do is see objects that are close. We want to see objects that are close together. And the problem with the atmosphere is that you get one object here and one object is here real close to it, okay? So if that's how they really are in space, what does our atmosphere do to them? Well, it fuzzes out this one to look like that and it fuzzes out that one to look like that. And all of a sudden when you're looking at them through the telescope, it looks like one object just because our atmosphere has blurred it so much. That's why Hubble is so much better. Hubble, instead of seeing that, sees this. Sees two very separate objects. The more turbulent the atmosphere gets, the worse. Now what this has, the resolving power, there actually is just because light is a wave, it also spreads it out and it makes it a little bit larger than it otherwise would be in any case, you actually have some size to these images just because of the telescope. Because you're looking at them through a telescope, 
it's going to change the size of the image because light behaves like a wave. So you get this one and you get these rings, almost these ring patterns around it. And it's just because of the way light works. That's the theoretical resolving power. And that depends on one over the diameter. Larger telescope gets you better light gathering power. It also gets you better resolution. Resolving power, you want this to be the smallest possible. You're looking for the smallest number in terms of resolving power. <coughs> How much detail are you able to see? So what the resolving power does is says you can see two stars that are separated so much. And the, better, the bigger the telescope is, the closer those two stars can really be. And you can see them as two individual stars. If you look at them with a small telescope, they'll be blurred together. As you get bigger and bigger telescopes, they're going to spread apart. And you're actually going to be able to see them as two distinct stars. So if we looked at resolving power here, erase my fuzzy little stars there. The resolving power is going to be, for a 4-inch telescope versus a 2-inch, is going to be two times better. So it's going to be able to see objects that were twice as close that the 2-inch telescope couldn't see. It's going to be able to see them as separated. For the 6-inch telescope, as compared to the 2-inch telescope, it's going to be three times better. It doesn't jump up quite as quickly as the square, like the light gathering power does. But it does get better. So as a bigger telescope, why are astronomers constantly building bigger telescopes? They gather more light and see faint objects. They get better resolving power, better overall resolving power. They can theoretically see things that are much closer together. Now what we see in that is, here's just some examples of improving the resolution of the telescope. If you look at it and to how well you can see things, you know, here's what you might see on a really bad, really bad night where the atmosphere is unusually turbulent. And as you go and focus, get a little bit better, better images, better images, better images, much clearer nights, you can see more detail. And you can see how everything's gotten blurred out there. By the time you get up to the highest one resolution image here, you're actually able to see much more detail. You can see the outline of this. You can start to see some of the structures that are in that galaxy that are washed out in that, in that other telescope. So if you looked at it with a little tiny telescope, you'd be able to see something like on the upper left. If you look at it with a much bigger telescope, again, ignoring atmospheric effects, you'd be able to see something more like on the lower right. Now this is the part I mentioned before. I said the atmosphere is also doing that. The air in the atmosphere is moving. It causes the stars to twinkle, which means that Individually, if you look at the star at any given instant, in this little disk as we see it, one time the star is here, one time it's here, one time it's here, one, it's jumping around because the atmosphere is unsteady. Little currents in the atmosphere cause those light rays to jump around. So the star is going to look like it's in different positions at different times. If you take a very quick exposure, that works out fine. You're going to get a nice sharp image of it. Because you're only taking an instantaneous exposure, you're only getting one of those, one or a couple of those images. It's not blurring out very much. But for most astronomical purposes, you don't want to take a very quick image. You want to sit there and you want to see the faint things. You want to put it out that area and you want to leave that camera open for an hour. You want to leave it open for 20 minutes. 
Well, over 20 minutes, that star is jumping out all over the place, and that will give you what we call the seeing disk. How, much, how spread out is that light? That has nothing to do with the telescope. This doesn't help you with that part. This tells you theoretically, just based on the, light, the wave properties of light, how much resolving power you can get. The atmosphere is a completely different effect and provides a limit on this. Which is why I kind of said, when you're looking, if you're looking at a telescope, the resolving power of the telescope isn't really a big deal to you because for any telescope you're looking at, this is going to overwhelm whatever you're going to get here. It's going to be really overwhelmed. This might say you'll be able to see so many, you know, arc seconds or whatever cal- calculation you get, but you're going to overwhelm it. Your seeing is going to be poor enough that you're not going to be able to see anywhere near the detail that this suggests you would theoretically be able to get. To get to this, you need special equipment that's used by professional telescopes that we'll talk about in a little bit, or you need um, the telescope above the Earth's atmosphere. So the atmosphere also kind of blurs up that a little bit too. Now let me see if I had solutions. So what do we do? Well, a couple things we can do, and I've sort of been mentioning this as we go. Put the telescope out in space. Hubble Space Telescope is one. It's great up above the atmosphere. It doesn't have that smearing effect that we just looked at at the last slide. It sees nice, clear images. Here's an example what you might get. There's one on the left-hand side. That might be what you'd see, just regular. If you take one of these two solutions into effect, say put the telescope out in space, instead of seeing this, you see this. It's the same object. We haven't changed where the telescope's pointing, anything else. We've just changed the resolution, got rid of that smearing effect of the Earth's atmosphere. So you can put it into space. You can put it on mountaintops, especially in the deserts, where I've shown you before, that you can you know, see the telescope out in, in the mountains of Hawaii, down in the Chilean deserts down in the deserts of the southwest United States. The other thing that we can do is use what we call active or adaptive optics. That means we really change the mirror. So instead of having just a mirror there, a nice big heavy solid mirror, as we kind of talked about, you know, that gigantic telescope, this thick, big giant piece of glass you're trying to control. Well, instead, a lot of the newer telescopes, they're making much thinner mirrors. So instead of getting thicker and thicker, they're getting thinner and thinner and taking advantage of the advances in computer technology. You know, 100 years ago, you couldn't do anything with that mirror. Once you had it, it was fixed. You had no way to control and adjust the shape of the mirror. Now, you can put little pistons behind the mirror, have a relatively thin or even some cases like what they call a floppy mirror. And you can keep adjusting it to keep its shape. Computer control can change that, you know, instantaneously to the exact shape that's needed and keep it at the exact right shape. So that's what we call active, ado- active optics, and it controls the mirror based on how the temperature has changed, and that adjusts the mirror, how it's pointing in the sky, how it's pointing, right? If we're pointing straight up, the mirror is nice and stable, but if I try to point it towards here, now all of a sudden it wants to flop over, but if you have computer control, mechanical control over it, you can keep it in the correct shape, something that would have been distorted previously. So those are some of the ways we can get around this. Before I go on to radio astronomy, I want to give you a number three that I don't put on there. Because it's not the very important one, but you'll probably see it. I think it's in the textbook. But the other power, light gathering power, resolving power, magnifying power. That's the one you hear about the most. It's actually the least important of them to a professional astronomer. Magnifying objects is not all that important. You really want to see the faintest objects. You really want to see the best detail, which is what these are getting to you. Magnifying only does any good if you've got the other two. 
If you've got a little telescope, you can change this. Magnifying power is very easy to change. You have your big mirror, which you can't change. You also have little eyepieces that you can put in. You can change the magnifying power by putting a different eyepiece in. You can put a higher power eyepiece in, you can get better magnifying power. But if you don't have good light gathering power, well, you're magnifying a faint image. If you magnify a faint image and it's faint when it's this big, what's it like when it's this big? It's gone. It's invisible. You're not going to see a thing. If you don't have very good resolving power, if the atmosphere is smearing everything out and you've got a big blurry, nice blurry galaxy, and you expand it and enlarge it, you get a bigger blurry galaxy. It doesn't help you with anything in terms of being able to see. But that's usually what they'll say, right? When you're looking at the telescopes in the discount stores, it'll say, magnetize 500 times or something. In terms of what you're really looking at, you really want to look at how big is that mirror or that lens, depending on what you're, what you're, which one you're considering. That's what you really want to look at. The magnifying power is the easiest of them to change. And it really, if you don't have good light gathering power and you don't have good resolving power, you know, magnifying power works great if you're looking at the moon, if you're looking at one of the brighter planets. If you're trying to look at stars or nebulae or something further out there, you know, expanding on a poor image gives you a bigger poor image. It doesn't give you any more detail on it. We'll get a little start on radio astronomy here and then we'll pick this up on, on Monday. Radio astronomy, it's the next one we're going to study in detail. I go through just very quickly through the other ones. Radio astronomy are very similar to a reflecting telescope. So they're very much like a reflecting telescope. They are all use a prime focus. Remember all the stuff we had with the Cassegrain and the Newtonian focus? You don't worry about that with radio telescopes. It's always a prime focus. Looks like a big satellite dish, right? You've got a great big satellite dish here that collects the radio waves, reflects them back up to the detector up here, which then goes down cable down to the analysis rooms, which could be here or could be further off, out below. The nice thing about radio telescopes is you're observing wavelengths that are very long. You're looking at things that are centimeters long, a few centimeters, to up to a meter in, in, in wavelength. And the way a telescope works and the way light works is the telescope has to be smooth compared to the light. <coughs> So if your wavelength you're looking at is, say, 6 centimeters, radio wavelength, typical radio wavelength, if you have little imperfections, little pits there that are millimeters in size, it doesn't care. As far as that, as far as that radiation is concerned, that's a perfectly smooth. Perfectly smooth surface. It doesn't see the difference. If you had those little millimeter-sized pits in an optical mirror, well, you're going to see it all over the place because it's much bigger than the wavelength of light. So that optical telescope has to be smooth down to nanometers because you're looking at that very tiny wavelengths of light. The radio telescope doesn't have to be that smooth. It only has to be smooth relative to the wavelength of light that you're looking at. So it makes it much easier to build some very large radio telescopes. And there's the biggest one. Biggest radio telescope that's ever been made is the 300 meter dish in Arecibo. So 12 meter telescopes, real big for an optical telescope. 300 meters. So, you know, across that 100 meters, about 100 yards, which is a football field, you can lay three football fields sticking across that, you know, from one end to the other. You know, you could go football field there and one there and one there across the distance. That's how big that telescope is. It's not steerable. 
It's not something you can adjust. If you look at how it's done there, there's no mechanism underneath it. It would still be very hard to support anything that big, 300 meters across. It's actually built into the valley in the mountains in Puerto Rico. So it actually only looks straight up. But it's the largest single dish telescope that exists. 300 meters across. So it can only look straight up. Whatever's straight up overhead, it can observe you know, a little path of the sky that's straight up overhead. If something only gets to the horizon in Puerto Rico, it's never going to be able to observe it. But it is the largest single telescope. The detector you can see is hung up there across the top. So you've got a detector up here which can be moved a little bit to, to, depending on exactly where you want to where you're trying to collect the radiation from. And you can see the people there are walking on it to check it. And you notice they have almost snowshoes on. You know, so your feet aren't pushing in and denting the surface. So you're spreading out your weight, weight over it. So you don't want to damage that. Let me see if I have one more telescope in here and then I'll No, I'm going to start I'll start on this on Monday. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there unless there are questions. Give you a little bit of an introduction there and then we'll finish radio telescopes and I say I kind of just skim through the rest of them afterwards. I'll go through some of the go through some of the other types of telescopes. So the quiz does go through chapter 3, so if you want to wait until Monday, you'll you you'll hear the rest you'll hear the rest of this. I'll go over the rest of this material. Of course, you have your notes and anything else on it that you're welcome to use as well if you want to try taking it. Try taking it earlier on that. You're welcome to. Questions? Otherwise, I'll take a few minutes and I'll get the rest of the lab set up here.